As I said in episode 900, my update about dropping this podcast back to one a week for a while for health reasons, I'm going to be sharing brand new episodes only on Mondays for a while. I'm going to use my usual Wednesday and Friday slots to reshare some excellent older episodes. What follows is one of those interviews. The price of solar and wind is falling rapidly and is price competitive with coal, oil, and gas. There are a lot of solutions that are at our fingertips that are currently being held back. And so just because we use fossil fuels doesn't mean that another economy and a different society is not possible. And in fact, it's at our fingertips. It's just being held back and held hostage at this moment by people like the Koch brothers and Rex Tillerson, etc. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. In this episode, I talked to Varshini Prakash about her work with Sunrise Movement. Varshini is an organizer in the climate movement who's building an army of young people to fight for the future of the planet. My interview with her provides a lens into how movements are built among the newest generation of activists. Varshini is a co-founder and the communications director for Sunrise, a movement to stop climate change. Their goal is to make climate change an urgent priority across America, to end the corrupting influence of fossil fuel interests on our politics, and to elect leaders who stand up for the health and well-being of all people. So with that as background, a quick word from our sponsor, then my interview with Varshini Prakash at Sunrise Movement. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. Um, my name is Varshini Prakash. I live in Boston, Massachusetts, and I've been an organizer in the climate movement for about four or five years now, starting when I was a student at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. And I am a co-founder and current communications director for Sunrise Movement. We are a movement that is building an army of young people to break the hold of, of fossil fuel CEOs, lobbyists, and their front groups on our politics and our democracy, and working to elect a new generation of leaders who are actually going to stand up for the health and well-being of all people, not just the 1%. So why should young people be interested in the climate? Well, as a young person, I am really watching this crisis unfold before my very eyes. We saw record storms. We saw devastating wildfires, droughts, mudslides in 2017 and are already seeing and continue to see a lot of 
painful circumstances for people in Puerto Rico and all over the global south and what they told us would happen decades from now, I'm seeing just at the age of 24 happening right in front of me. A lot of why I'm in this movement is because I have seen the way that climate-fueled floods have really devastated where my family and where our hometown is in Chennai, India. And I just don't believe that anyone should have to live in fear of losing their home or the places that they love to crises that we can stop and that we could be taking significant action to prevent. So I'm really seeing that my generation is poised to inherit this world and with it, its complications and and beauty and everything that comes with it. And that we're really at a crossroads in this moment of what kind of world my generation and the generations that come after me are going to be born into and have to live with. It is a big challenge you've taken on. <laughs> yeah. Tell me about the group that you're co-founder of in some detail. Sure. So I am with Sunrise and we are a movement of young people predominantly. We were co-founded back in June 2017, so fairly recently, but we have done a lot in just the few short months that we have been live and kicking. We launched after a year-long planning process um, that started right around when Donald Trump was elected president, a little bit before that, when we were also seeing the rise of Bernie Sanders and also seeing the rise of Donald Trump on the right, and seeing the ways in which people in this country are really ready for something new, and that people in this country are angry and upset at the way that they have been treated and upset at the way that our establishment has been running our democracy and, and political system at, you know, the widening inequality, at the way in which our climate is becoming rapidly destabilized. And we're also really inspired by the way that people like Bernie Sanders were bringing out millions of young people and giving young people a, a vision and a plan to be excited about. And crafting a society that that they could be really excited about as well and that young people were coming out in droves. So a lot of us at this time had been engaged in a multitude of different projects. Um, I myself was a leader in the fossil fuel divestment movement, pushing college campuses and institutions to divest from fossil fuel companies. And other folks who were working on the strategic planning process were working on place-based extraction fights and trying to pass legislation at the state level. And all of us were kind of looking around in this moment as we were seeing Donald Trump win elections and also seeing in many ways the failure of our political system to do anything significant on the issue of climate and asking ourselves whether we were big enough and powerful enough and whether we were actually going to scale to meet this crisis with the urgency that it merited. And at the time, obviously, we felt no. And we came together and created Sunrise after really taking a hard look at the successes and failures of the climate movement and finding that one of the things that we were struggling with the most was that as external movements, we had been largely successful in many different ways in our respective areas, but that we needed to come together with a plan for how to go to scale. 
So we launched Sunrise in June 2017 with the idea of building both people power and political power. And what we mean by that is developing a movement that could both mobilize people and create a large vocal active base of supporters pushing for comprehensive climate legislation and climate policy, and also be building political power, meaning building a critical mass of enthusiastically supportive public officials, and that we needed both of those things to win. I remember feeling utterly devastated on November 9th, 2016, when we saw that Donald Trump had won, but not just Donald Trump had won, that a climate-denying GOP now controlled both the House and the Senate, and that the GOP also controlled a, a vast majority of state legislatures. And taking a hard look at the fact that our movements right now deeply lack the political power that we need to institutionalize the wins that we've made in our movements and in our rallies and our demonstrations and our protests. So we came up with the idea for Sunrise and launched at the April 29th People's Climate March in D.C., where we were able to talk to over a thousand young people in the crowd that day alone and have continued on since. And you have a co-founder? Yeah, we have a, a few co-founders. Um, so the strategic planning process uh, involved about 12 to 13 individuals from across the climate movement who had been organizing for a variety of years. So I have multiple people who took on the project of creating Sunrise alongside. You know, and I know that there's a lot of groups that are interested in the climate problem. And there's a lot of uh, groups that are not just environmental that that count this among the things that they're working on. How do you fit yourself into the general progressive ecosystem that is aligned with you? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I would really describe Sunrise as the youth populist flank of the climate movement. We are harnessing the energy, the motivation, the passion just the energy of young people in this political moment and also the political moment itself. I think we're finding that more than right versus left, we're really seeing ourselves being pulled into this broader question and conversation and fight that's that's between the top a wealthy handful of rich CEOs and fossil fuel CEOs and businessmen versus the vast majority of the planet of this 99% versus 1% debate. And that we've actually framed a lot of our conversation and our, our strategy uh, and our plan around taking down and exposing the influence of these fossil fuel billionaires on our politics. So we see ourselves as being a little bit more, you know, <laughs> we're young people, so we can be a little bit more edgy. We can be a little bit more pushy. We can actually hold our politicians' feet to the fire when they're not doing everything in their power to stop the climate crisis. And I can tell you, the vast majority of politicians out there are definitely not doing everything that they could be doing to stop this crisis and protect the lives of, of millions of people. So, that's the role that we see. And, and we see ourselves as definitely a part of this broader movement ecosystem. We have a lot of friends who are really good at the protest and people power part of our strategy and are more than excited and ready to, to work alongside them. We were just a part of 
an event that happened on January 31st called Fossil Free Fast, the Climate Resistance, which was sort of the the climate movement's response to the State of the Union and laying out our plans for for 2018 and all the different ways in which we're going to attack the climate crisis. We know that we can't build electoral power. We can't build political power. We don't have all the people it takes to to win politically in the ways that we need to, to take back the House and the Senate, to take back Congress in the next four years to actually pass the comprehensive legislation that we need. So we're really excited and willing to work with anybody who shares our vision and and strategy of, of really winning people power and political power. Are there other groups of the sort that you are aspiring to be that you model yourself after? Yeah, well, I can speak a little bit about the models that we used to actually develop the plan for Sunrise. So a lot of us were really inspired by uh, Momentum and the INE Institute, which developed a hybrid model of organizing, which kind of takes from the, the best of, of organizing models and traditions that have come before us. So they have actually created a new framework for organizing and movement building that combines structure-based organizing that we've seen in unions and labor and neighborhood-to-neighborhood community organizing and melded it with kind of the bigger flash-in-the-pan type organizing that has the power to shift the political weather within months, things like Black Lives Matter, um, the Occupy, etc., but also tends to go away as soon as it shows up. So they developed this hybrid model of organizing and multiple different movements have come out of that, such as Cosecha, which is an amazing movement to fight for the permanent protection and dignity and respect for all undocumented immigrants in America. And also, If Not Now, which was a movement of young Jews fighting to end the American Jewish public's support for the occupation of Palestine. And both of those groups lent us a a huge helping hand in actually developing our movement framework and our plans and and continue to be very, very inspiring for us and and are, are chock full of really incredible organizers. And We've been really inspired by Bernie's campaign, particularly some of the tools and resources around volunteer-led structures and decentralized campaigning that allows uh, local leaders and volunteers to really have agency and power and autonomy to do what they do best, which is organizing their communities. So we've been inspired by a few of those different groups. And I mean, we continue to be inspired by lots of different people every single day. Uh, Folks like Lancaster Stands Up, which is a a really powerful community organization in Lancaster, Pennsylvania that came and started after Donald Trump won presidency and continues to, to organize very forcefully in the area and to really has been the roots of the resistance, I think, in a big way and shown the way forward for how to do powerful and strong organizing at a time when a lot of people feel defeated and demoralized and not sure what the pathway forward is. What can we expect to see you and Sunrise doing? I mean, you mentioned sending out some people to grow your base, but what are, what are the actions that you're planning to take? And as you, as you get all these people that are aligned with you, what are you going to have them do? 
So as I said, we started in June 2017. And right away when we started, we uh, held a series of trainings and actually trained over 200 young leaders across the country just that summer alone. And so we're really trying to combine both the, as I said, the people power component of it and the political power component. And from the people power standpoint, we train up leaders. We invite people to join our movement and bring them into what we call Sunrise Hubs, which are basically the local groups that carry the work forward of Sunrise. We have about a few dozen Sunrise Hubs that are existing and working all across the country right now. And so the first way in which we kind of flexed our people power muscle was in August of 2017 during the August recesses when Congress people are back in their hometowns uh, to, to, you know, supposedly hold town halls. Some of them did. <laughs> Many of them did not. Um, but we actually sent young people to these town halls in a series of actions that we called shine a light actions. So we had young people do research on their elected representatives and go to these town halls and ask them why they had taken money from the fossil fuel industry when fossil fuel CEOs and these industry executives had really were compromising the futures and lives of young people all across the country and the world. And we had one young woman, September Poras, who's 19 years old, who fundraised enough money for her and her mom to get into a Marco Rubio fundraiser because he wasn't actually holding a public town hall. And she stood up in the middle of his keynote and asked him why he had taken three quarters of a million dollars from the fossil fuel industry and how he could do that while knowing that it compromised the lives of young people like her. So we did about 20 to 25 actions like that, which really set us up for the fall. How did, how did he respond to that? Oh, I think he said, he said, isn't it nice that we live in a country where people are free to do this? In other countries, you would be jailed for interrupting me like that, which I thought was just astounding that his response to this young person who's just trying to protect her future was, you should be grateful that you're not in jail for asking me this question. I mean, it's absurd. It kind of reminds me of, of what's been going on, uh, the candidate running Lisa Lucas in West Virginia, who was dragged off for listing off all the people on the committee who had received money from fossil fuel companies. Like it, it's absurd the way that some elected representatives believe that they can get away with taking money from the industry. That was the summer. And it was, so it was a chock full summer. And as we headed into the fall, the big organizing moment and pivotal moment for us was actually around COP23, the UN climate negotiations. If you remember, this was a little bit after Donald Trump had pulled out of the Paris Agreement, an act which the majority of Americans do not support. And it would be the first year since Donald Trump had been elected president that we would be attending an international climate negotiation and have the face of these negotiations be the Secretary of State, Rex Tillerson, who was the former CEO of ExxonMobil, a man who has literally never worked for another company besides ExxonMobil in his entire adult life since he was 25 years old. So uh, we knew this was going to be a big moment for us that the Trump administration was going to be telling their side of the story at 
the Paris climate talks and that we as young people and as uh, Americans from diverse walks of life needed to be at this negotiation and needed to be telling the story and shouting from the rooftops that Donald Trump does not represent what Americans believe that we are still in the Paris Agreement and that we were fighting for it moving forward. And that even if the federal government is not with us, that state and local governments would continue to fight to push for comprehensive climate policy. So I was actually a part of this delegation that went upon Germany. And while we were in Germany, I was with uh, Sustain Us, which is a awesome organization that sends young people to these international and domestic conferences every single year. So while I was in Germany, people were actually fighting back at home and were holding events. We called it the Day of Dedication. They were holding events and pushing politicians at home to sign on to support the Paris Agreement or risk being known for their inaction throughout the years to come. And so we actually created and buried time capsules to serve as kind of like a to hold the promise of what we were doing in this moment that we would continue to fight for a safe and healthy planet and future and inviting our politicians to join us or to not join us and be remembered through time for refusing to join us. And it was really powerful. We had actions in 25 different cities. It was a huge coalition of youth groups all across the country, all working on climate change. And we saw actions happening, you know, in Truckee, California, in Columbus, Ohio, in Tallahassee, Florida, all over the place. Had, you know, 14-year-old uh, high schoolers collecting letters and objects of, of what they love and are fighting to protect and sending them in. So... That was a little bit of, of what happened in the fall. And while we were in Germany as well, we actually, I was a part of a, a group of about 100 people that interrupted a White House panel, the only White House panel that the White House sent to these negotiations that were actually peddling fossil fuel interests at a climate change conference. And so we actually stood up in the middle of this panel and all together sang a remixed rendition of Proud to be an American, switched the lyrics around to be about how the administration cannot call themselves Americans and, and continue to put the lives of Americans and people around the world at risk and managed to stop the panel for about 10 minutes. And then we walked out of the room, leaving them largely talking to themselves. There were only about 10 people and the media left in the room and held a really powerful rally outside with Indigenous allies and other groups. So that was definitely a highlight of 2017 and a little bit of just what we did as Sunrise. And wow, there's so much. We held another 14 trainings across the fall. We uh, sent a tour of young people out through 11 states and talked to almost 4,000 people and invited them to join the movement. And now we're shifting into the political power angle of our work. This spring, we are launching the No Fossil Fuel Money Pledge. And we are working to make 2018 the year when no politician who is claiming to care about young people and our future can still take money from fossil fuel uh, executives, their lobbyists, and their front groups any longer. So 
we're going to get candidates. Our goal this year is to get 500 new candidates to sign on to the No Fossil Fuel Money Pledge to refuse donations from those bad actors and prioritize the health and well-being of, of families and our protect our democracy instead. And we've been launching that and already we launched on January 31st uh, with an exciting announcement from Bernie Sanders that he was signing on to the pledge. And since then have just received rolling signatures from candidates all across the country every single day, sharing how why they care about stopping climate change and that they are willing to take the action necessary and sign the pledge. The development in the in the climate arena that has most come to my notice and, and alarmed me over the last decade or so is that a, a good portion of the country has come to be persuaded that this is a controversial matter or that it's not happening. You know, it's not a, a problem of man-made action. Is anything in your strategy pertain to trying to persuade people that this really is going on? Or are you only talking to people who are already clear on that? Yeah, it's a great question. What I will say is that we have won the debate about public opinion on climate change. We have won public opinion on our side when it comes to climate change. A, a majority of Americans believe that we need to transition off of fossil fuels and that we need to move towards a renewable energy economy and want the government to do something to stop pollution, uh, carbon pollution, greenhouse gas pollution, etc. I mean, 91% of millennials actually support transitioning America to 100% renewable energy by 2050. 91% is really significant. So what we are finding is that it's not so much an issue of persuading individuals who have been sort of steeped in climate denial messaging for decades or or just are not going to be convinced and that it's more of an issue of activating the people who are passively in support of some type of action on climate, but just haven't been asked or haven't been pushed and invited to join the movement in some kind of capacity. It doesn't even have to be, you know, join the movement and give 40 hours of your life every week. We're talking about participation, like sign a pledge, vote in favor of of climate policy, um, donate to institutions and progressive groups and movements that are doing this type of work. There's actually an interesting study that shows that one in eight people are willing to commit civil disobedience to get the government to do something to limit global warming. One in eight people is like I think almost 40 million people or something like that when it comes to the actual population of the United States. And I mean, we've tapped into a tiny, tiny, tiny fraction of that number of people. So I think we're really looking at not spending our time talking to people who are obstinately not going to agree with us uh, and spending more of our time creating on-ramps for the people who are with us, but just haven't been invited yet. Another sort of category of behavior that's not helpful to the climate problem is that is those of us myself included that are using fossil fuels all the time i known to put it into my car and to heat 
my house. And both of those things, I'm kind of all too aware, are not great uh, for the world, but they are very helpful in the day-to-day life. And many of us face that problem. What, What can we do about that? Totally. Well, what I would say about this is that I think if we had the options available to us, we were able to have affordable cars that ran on electricity and we were able to access renewable sources of energy consistently and that our houses were retrofitted and made more efficient, etc. I think an overwhelming majority of people would choose that type of lifestyle. And, and there's an awful lot of work going into all of those things. Absolutely. In, including Absolutely. by big industry. Yes. I think what I will say is that at this point in time, the problem is that right now our government has been in many ways captured by fossil fuel interests and that these interests over the last 40 years have led to you know, misinforming the public about the actual issue have led to actively blocking climate legislation for the last 20 years. And, you know, people like the Koch brothers who made their money in petrocoke and oil refining, etc., are spending almost as much as the Democratic and Republican parties on our election cycles and are buying out the loyalty of these politicians. And I think that actually as I said before, a majority of people support transitioning towards a renewable economy. People want this transition to happen. And the price of solar and wind is falling rapidly and is price competitive with coal, oil, and gas. That There are a lot of solutions that are at our fingertips that are currently being held back. And so just because we use fossil fuels doesn't mean that an, another economy and a different society is not possible. And in fact, it's at our fingertips. It's just being held back and held hostage at this moment by people like the Koch brothers and Rex Tillerson, etc. So I would say that, yes, we all use fossil fuels. But at this point, what we need to do is actually shift the way that our government looks to actually create the type of national policy that's going to make the sweeping changes that we need to actually shift all of our lives. Because it's great to ride your bicycle and drive a Prius, etc. But in the end, those are the type of transformational changes that we're going to have to make to actually solve the climate crisis. Now, if I if I were a politician and there were and my district had a whole bunch of very activated young people and not just young people who were really working on on the climate issue, I'd pay attention to that. Absolutely. What's tricky about climate, I think, is it's so large. We have debates where it doesn't even come up, right? Political debates because there are other issues of the moment. Yeah, it's an interesting thing. I mean, there was actually a, a, a New York Times Stanford poll that was asked a group of people, what is the most important issue facing you right now? And you can probably guess what, you know, number one, number two, and number three are. It's like jobs, economy, health, and uh, terror were the top three for like, what do you care about right now in this moment? And then they asked this exact group of people in 30 years, what do you think will be the number one issue facing humanity? And above everything else, the number one thing that people said in 30 years was climate and environment. 
global warming and environment. And so we actually call this uh, the urgency gap. And as we saw in 2017, I mean, 2017 was one of the costliest years on record when it came to disaster damages. I think it was something between 300 and 400 billion dollars that it cost us. And that is just measured in dollars. I mean, that's not even measuring, you know, people's pain at losing family members, at losing their homes or, or you know, having the, the place that they love be defaced permanently and, you know, not having a home to call home anymore. So we've really seen that this issue is here and now. It's, it's not an issue of 30 years from now. It's not even an issue really of five or 10 years from now. It's, it's affecting and killing people in this moment. So a lot of what we're actually trying to do by pushing these politicians to make choices in this moment, by making it an unavoidable issue in elections and in our communities, and by forcing kind of a, a, a race to the tops debate around climate in these elections uh, at every level is to actually close that urgency gap, to make sure that people feel the urgency around climate and, and feel like it's a more urgent priority in this moment, but also our politicians do. And something you were saying earlier around how politicians, if, if they actually felt like they were accountable to people, might take some kind of action. It's There's this really fascinating article that came out in Politico a couple of days ago talking about how actually in, in a broad sense, the Democratic Party does not feel that accountable or feel like they need to shift their opinion that dramatically based off of what the left uh, is pushing for in a given moment in the same way that the right felt during the rise of the Tea Party, for example. And I think that's a real issue. I think it's an issue that Democrats right now don't feel like their feet is being held to the fire when it comes to issues around climate or, or a variety of different things like free higher ed and, and Medicare, Medicaid, et cetera. So I think a lot of what we're trying to do is support candidates who we're not supporting candidates just nominally because they have a D in front of their name. We're trying to push candidates forward who are actually progressives in more than just name, in action as well. And that means pushing for candidates who are going to support us to get to an 100% renewable energy economy that doesn't leave people behind to shut down fossil fuel projects and, and transition control over our energy system to be more locally and democratically operated. If things went how you envision or aspire, what would success look like for Sunrise? Our goal at Sunrise is really to be a part a, of a broader progressive movement that is pushing to elect a new generation of leaders in 2018 and 2020 that are going to turn the political tide in this country towards a society that works for all of us. And I would consider our work successful if we were a part of a broader grassroots army that was able to secure significant victories in swing states in 2018 and 2020. If we were able to get hundreds, if not thousands of candidates 
all across this country to take pledges like the no fossil fuel money pledge, but go even beyond that. And for lots of politicians to to declare that they will fight like hell to stop the climate crisis and, and do everything it takes and everything in their power to do so. And I would consider us to be successful if we were able to turn out thousands, tens of thousands of people to protest demonstrations, to confront politicians during events and fundraisers and meetings, et cetera, and actually push them to take the action that's necessary. What we're hoping for is to be a part of a broader progressive alignment that in 2020, potentially under a Democratic president, is going to start to debate things like how we put together a comprehensive national climate policy that will actually reduce our emissions in the time that we need and that will pass huge jobs bills uh, related to climate and environment. So that's what I would consider to be successful for Sunrise. That, that would be very good. For the country, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Don't worry. It's not ambitious at all. <laughs> so, you know, you mentioned that you grew up in Chennai and then that you, you know, started doing some of this activism in college. Can you talk just a little bit about sort of the roots of this obsession or interest or activation for yourself? Where's this coming from in you particularly? Yeah, sure. So I will say I did not, uh, I wasn't born in Chennai. I was born in Concord, Massachusetts, but my family is, uh, my parents emigrated from India and I was very fortunate to be able to go back and forth when I was younger. And it's always just been a very, very important place to me. Um, my dad would tell me lots of stories of what it was like to grow up in Besanagar, which is a small little coastal town on the Bay of Bengal. And he would tell me about playing on the sandy beaches and about his grandmother cutting, you know, papaya and mango and eating it under palm trees and how his dad would come home on his dinky little two-wheeler every night after work. And so I've always, I've always had a very, um, a close appreciation for Chennai. And one of the moments that stands out to me the most growing up was, I'm sure you remember, back in 2005 when the tsunami hit in India, in Sri Lanka, and Indonesia. And I remember, I think I was in the fifth grade at the time, or the sixth grade, something like that. And I remember turning on, I never watched the news because it was sad and scary, and I didn't like it. But when the tsunami hit, I remember turning on the news every single day to CNN and watching these two waves just crash over and over and over again and feeling just a deep, deep sense of powerlessness and of not knowing what to do, of seeing people who looked like me and my family and my friends whose homes were being just subsumed by water, children and dogs and, and mothers getting pulled away to see the damage that really ensued afterwards and wanting to do something about it and having no, having no way to do anything except, you know, collect cans and like send them with the Red Cross, which felt just so not enough for what was actually happening. And so it really stands out to me at this moment when I realized that, you know, my home, the people that I love were in a precarious place, that that things could happen, that there were forces beyond our control that could shift the way that we lived and loved completely. And almost exactly a decade later, 
uh, Chennai was in trouble again. And this time it was due to uh, a particularly strong monsoon season, which led to some really horrific floods in 2015. And it looked exactly the same as what I remembered in 2005. You know, I called my grandmother wanting to make sure that she had been okay in the floods. And she she had been really lucky to have been gone from her house at that time, but the floods had crept into her apartment. And that if she had been there at the time, potentially she and my, you know, 80 year old grandfather might have been stuck without food or water or electricity for days on end. And I have no idea if they would have survived. And so in this moment, I think I, I, I felt that anger and, and some sense of powerlessness come into me again. But at the same time, I was like, this is a crisis. This is a thing that we can stop. This, that there are actual people responsible for what is happening to people in India who are dying of heat waves, to people in Sierra Leone who are dying of mudslides, people all over the country and the world who are suffering because of climate-related disasters. And I think I just got, uh, I like obsessed is probably the right word, obsessed with this idea that there was suffering that was caused that was unnecessary and undue and unfair and unjust and needed to be stopped. And so when I was in college, I tried to find all these like sustainability groups and recycling groups and whatnot. And I was like, I don't know what to do and joined a few different things. And someone invited me to an action about making sure that fracking didn't happen in the Pioneer Valley where I was attending school. And I joined. And within two days, they had me emceeing the rally. First thing I'd ever done as part of uh, the movement, which I didn't know was a thing at that time. Um, By the way, I can see why. (laughs) You can say that again? I can see why. Yeah. Yeah. I'm very energetic. (laughs) Um, And well-spoken, yes. Thank you. Yeah. And they asked me to emcee it. And I was, you know, shaking in my boots. I'd never done something like this before. I never thought of myself as someone who could do this. And I got up there and looking out at the, you know, small group of 150 people who came out during finals week to say no to fossil fuels in our community, I just felt this incredible sense of of joy and calm and energy and inspiration at the same time at knowing that for the first time I wasn't alone in being angry and frustrated and sad at what was happening in the world around me and that I had a movement and a group of people that would be that would be with me to actually stop this crisis and take action however whenever we could so that was that's how I caught the bug and I joined a fossil fuel divestment campaign on my campus and loved it, just like loved organizing so much, loved tabling and recruitment, loved writing letters and going door to door. And it was just, I loved it. It was amazing. As you know, just a couple weeks into this campaign, we collected almost 4,000 petition signatures to ask our university to divest. We held an action with almost 200 people that we recruited. And this campaign continued for two or three years, uh, we did banner drops. We had meetings with our administration. We had actions, all kinds of things. And it culminated in spring 2016 when we actually had a two-week-long 
very epic escalation that ended up bringing in almost 700 students for its duration. And then, you know, thousands more alumni, faculty, staff, and just community support. And actually where uh, 32 young people were actually arrested for participating in civil disobedience to, uh, because in protest of our university's administration's investment policies. And we won the campaign. A week and a half later, we ended up winning the campaign, and it was one of the most incredible experiences of my life. And one of those moments when I was like, "Wow, organizing really truly works!" And um, yeah, it was just it really truly works, and it gave me a lot of faith. So that was Varshini Prakash at Sunrise. She's at sunrisemovement.org. What is more important than protecting our planet for human life and the lives of other species? I'm happy that Varshini is working to bring young people into the political process through this vital issue. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at resistancedashboard.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. <laughs>